In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. How's it going? Good. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm, I'm lost my voice again. It's, I was gonna say, yeah. I th- I thought I saw like on Instagram stories another Battle of the Bands thing. Exactly, another one of those things. This time it was '90s versus '80s. Oh, it was fun. It was super fun again. Because um, the last one was '90s versus 2000s. Exactly. Okay. And you know what's funny? We were on the way there, me and Davey, and we were like, "Wouldn't it be funny if it was just the same bands again?" It literally it was, was the same bands again. Like the That's '90s people funny. obviously were there to. Uh, defend their title yeah but the 80s band was literally the 2000s band with one singer replaced of the two how funny what were the 80s songs they did let's see they did share uh turn back time okay uh-huh. they did madonna oh like a prayer um uh. they did of course i remember the two divas first <laughs> uh they did Pat Benatar? Blondie? Oh, they no, they did Joan Jett. Um, oh. Oh, yeah, they Rock did Pat roll. Benatar and Joan Jett, actually, I think. Oh. I'm forgetting now, but I was having a blast and singing and yelling and all that good stuff, so I um, lost my voice a little bit again. Do they do they win a prize? Like, what is what is the purpose of the Battle of the Bands? There's other a than, trophy like... there okay. that they like. They get my guess now that I've seen it twice and I see it's the same two bands. I'm gonna guess that it's the. T- I looked at the like website, and they advertise f- four decades that they do. So I uh-huh. guess they kind of just rotate it, and I'm guessing they're just kind of their own show, the two bands together. Oh, I'm guessing. Interesting. And they just market huh. it as a battle of the bands, and they just decide probably beforehand, you know, who's going to try to kill it. Yeah, that's so funny. <laughs> uh, it was a blast, though. So that was fun. And we went to one of those light show things recently, too, for the holidays. Um, you saw when I did the lantern thing, right? Yeah. Because you said they do something similar in the Santa Barbara. Yeah, 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 yeah. I never knew that was a thing, but that was so cute. But um, we drove out to New York and went to one another type of thing like that, but it was just lights. Um, all these like light sculptures, uh-huh. you know, wire, and you drive through it, so it's like you're in an environment, like a it like was a really cute. safari tour kind of thing. Yeah, it was really cute. It was fun, but then there was this one area we were driving through, and it was like miners we like we were in a mine it looked like with stone oh out all made of lights though which it looked really cool and there were like diamonds that's cool yeah and i was like this is cool but everything was so holiday themed and then and then there were we were in a diamond mine and the the little miners were like green and i was like are they supposed to be elves i'm not sure it was maybe but we moved on and then it was strange and we're like okay whatever we turned the corner. It was, like, at a football stadium, I think, that they do this yeah. or something like that. and Or a baseball stadium. And I that's the team name, like, the Miners or whatever. Oh, got it. And we're like, oh, okay. I never would have gotten that. And then yeah. there were, like, baseball-themed things. And we're like, okay, it's all making sense. <laughs> yes. Interesting. <laughs> it was fun. Cute. You know, we're doing, a, doing our holiday thing. I love it. Um, well, I have just two things to report. The first is, after we recorded yesterday, Miles, my partner... He, I know you know who he is, but I was just saying that for (laughs) listeners. Uh, He was like, 
were you just telling a story about a woman who killed all of her children? And I was like, yeah, she, she, they think it's a case of Munchausen by proxy, but you know, it's uh, unverified. And he was like, was her name Mary Beth? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, I just got done listening. Like literally as I was telling the story, he, he was on some like random YouTube channel telling her story. Whoa. That's so weird. Isn't that weird? And then the second thing I have to report is that I just saw that there's going to be an HBO, it looks like a docu-series about Miss Cleo. And so obviously we're going to need to watch that. Oh, I'm very interested because my knowledge of, I know more about Miss Cleo than I should. Because <laughs> I, just, I just got really obsessed with Miss Cleo uh-huh. when she was on TV. I just thought she was like the funniest thing. I would watch those commercials to no end. Yeah. Obsessed. And then... E. Balm's World. Do you remember E. Balm's World? Of course. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, they had a soundboard thing where you can do prank calls. Uh, yes, I know. And they had my favorite three. I th- there were a bunch, but my favorite three to use were the Dr. Phil one, <laughs> the Judge Judy one, and the Miss Cleo one. Yeah. Because they just had the most preposterous. I mean, I didn't actually prank call real people. I would play them and p- listen to the prank calls and stuff. Yeah. Was, you know. Uh whatever <laughs> anyway but the miss cleo one had the funniest things like they would call people and you'd be able to be like <laughs> osteoporosis runs in your family doesn't it yeah <laughs> exactly what happened in april yeah <laughs> but anyway miss cleo i know after she went off the air i know she went she came out as queer oh i didn't know that okay first and then she came out as fraudulently making not only like the whole she, you know, I think she lost her cases in court and stuff. Um, but I think she was had a fake accent even. Oh, yeah. She's not Jamaican. She's, like, from – I don't even know where. She's uh, – Like, probably Pittsburgh. Literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, what it, the hell? The, all I took away from the little commercial for the documentary series was, like, people were – like, multiple people were saying, like, you know, the, the character of Miss Cleo and the Jamaican accent, like, all of that was fake. But – for her, the, like, helping people and the psychic readings, like, that's all real. So I'm interested. I'm interested. I think it'll be uh, int- intriguing to watch. Maybe we should watch it and then make that a Patreon episode. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. Have you... Oh, I haven't really watched anything new this week. I'm watching my shows very slowly. It's been kind of a busy week, holiday stuff, and um, it's all done now, so... Yeah. But um, I've... Only watched a couple more episodes of White Lotus, and the <sighs> internet is like ruthless with memes. Like you can't, yes. I cannot scroll anywhere. No. It's this is almost worse than when I'm trying to avoid like the winner of Drag Race. Yeah, I don't know. Somehow I'm able to avoid those more. Yeah, this time, like every other meme is has Jennifer Coolidge in it, and yeah. I'm like, can you just let <laughs> let me catch up a minute? No. It's so many. Yeah. So I'm way. Be- I'm still in like episode five of ep- season one. Yeah, you'll uh, you'll have to dedicate some time to get through it. But uh, the internet, the amount of memes uh, <laughs> is out of control, and I love every single one of them. Uh, I'm sure I will join in that love when I get there. But yeah, I just started to watch that documentary. It's super old, I think, on Hulu called WeWork. Okay. Have you watched it? No. 
I feel like it's been advertised to me like a gajillion times at the top uh-huh. of Hulu uh-huh. over the whole pandemic. I don't know how old it is, but it feels older. Anyway, it's some kind of documentary about a, I guess, a tech company or or maybe a fake one. I just started it. And they were like operating with the, the ideas. They were called themselves like We Work. Yeah, I've heard of that ide- organization. Yeah, and I don't know. It seems some, that there's some kind of fraudulent huh. thing going on. But. Interesting. Just started it, so jury's out, but I'm interested because I've never even heard of this thing. Um, and other than that, I – oh, I just wanted to share something. Okay. <laughs> I follow this Instagram person. I'm sure he's some sort of public figure. I don't know who he is, but he's just funny. Uh, Danny Pellegrino on Instagram. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. He's always doing, like, the housewives and pop culture crap. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, he posted a clip of Jessica Simpson and Ashley Simpson singing Little Drummer Boy. Oh, my God. Uh, I – and he put something – I, I screenshotted it. He wrote, TBS shows a Christmas story every Christmas Eve. ABC reruns a Charlie Brown Christmas each year. And here on my Instagram page, it's not December until we all watch Jessica – and Ashley sing Little Drummer Boy. <laughs> I, it, it, whenever I think of Ashley Simpson, I just think of that clip of her, of oh. Kristen Wiig playing her on S- SNL. Oh my God. <laughs> it's so good. It's so accurate. If you, uh, if you don't know the clip I'm talking about, just Google Kristen Wiig, um, Jessica Simpson, and it's spot and on. Y- and, and then everyone go find Jessica Simpson and Ashley Simpson singing the Little Drummer Boy. He just posted a few clips of it. It is so bizarre. <laughs> they roll their R's for Parumpa Pum Pum. <laughs> it's really weird. I uh, yeah, I'll I'll go watch it after this. And for anybody who's not a, a true fan, Ashley is spelled with two E's. That's right. Oh, it was great. It really pepped me up this morning when I saw that. Got you in the the Christmas spirit. It sure did. I thought I should share it with everybody. Uh, Well, should we uh, get into the the Law & Order episode? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. Well, this episode is Season 5, Episode 8. It is titled Virtue, and it opens on Beat Cops. And I realized when I was recapping, I was like, trying to remember how many Beat Cop openings we placed. I realized, oh like, I don't know if we even placed bets at the beginning of this season. I think we just abandoned it. Yeah. I think we just abandoned it. Uh, how's that it's for a relic. us? It's a relic of times past. It's a relic. It'll, in the future, we'll be like, remember when we just started and we were doing bets? We'll, <laughs> we'll just, like, do a shot or pour one out for every time we see a Beat Cop opening when we're recapping. <laughs> I like it. So uh, the beat cops are in their patrol car. One of them is talking about a birthday party for his son. And then they get a call about a possible fatality. And they pull up to a car accident that actually looks pretty gnarly and was, Mm. like, surprisingly good for Law & Order. Like, it looked like a a really believable car accident. Yeah, it was was like you winced a little bit when you saw it because it kind of... Did the job this time. Yes. Usually it's very high school yeah. musical production. <laughs> I will say, again, the uh, special effects team who's in charge of blood uh, still chooses writ egg dye primary red for all of their blood special effects. But 
Uh, so there's a person behind the wheel in both of the cars, and both of them appear to be dead. And Logan and Briscoe show up, and it looks like one of the cars was going the wrong way down the street, and they find a bottle of alcohol in his car, so it looks like a drunk driver hit the other driver. And Briscoe's kind of annoyed, like, why did we get called out to an accident? Like, we're detectives. We're, this is not our, our, our gig. And... The driver of the second car is kind of what spurred them calling Logan and Briscoe out because all of the injuries on her body are on like the wrong side of her body. The car seat is too far back for her to have been driving the car. So they think somebody else was driving and then placed her in the driver's seat. So mysteries abound. Hmm. We get the title sequence, and I had just a couple of minutes, and so I decided to take a few piano lessons, and now I can play the first few measures of Moonlight Sonata, and uh, by the time I had kind of mastered those, we're back. Wow, you've really made it. You've you've really know how to maximize your time. (laughs) Yep. So at the station, Logan and Briscoe are talking to LVB, uh, Lieutenant Van Buren, who thinks that maybe the guy that was driving the car was, like, having an affair with this woman. And this this was a jump in logic that was like, this seems weird. Like, she was immediately like, okay, somebody else was driving. They put her in the driver's seat, and they fled. So, obviously, it's a married man having an affair with her. And I was like, what? That's, it, it would normally be, like, just gossip. Yes. But it was fact. Yeah. So Logan, and so she's like, regardless, like, this really isn't our business. And Logan says, well, if she was alive when he fled the scene of the accident, then, you know, this is our kind of case to investigate. So uh, they talk to the medical examiner who says that the woman died instantly upon the accident because her head hit the dashboard and it killed her instantly. The, The discrepancy, though, is that she had a bunch of bruises on her arms and her legs not from the accident and it looks like she has some sexual injuries as well uh her underwear was torn so it looks like she was sexually assaulted before she died in a car accident which is just truly a horror show of an evening Mm -hmm. so uh they talk to the accident investigation squad and the person there says that he thinks the person driving was about six feet tall or maybe six foot one Uh, But the fingerprints in the car don't match anyone in the system. But they do find a valet parking ticket. Uh, So they're like, okay, uh, maybe the valet parking attendant would recognize who the man was driving this car. So they head down to this hotel uh, where the valet parking ticket came from and speak with the valet. And he says, oh, yeah, I, I know the woman you're talking about. She... Was, seemed kind of upset. She looked like maybe she had been crying. And they're like, what about the man who was with her? And he says, like, I don't know. He was just some guy in a tuxedo. There was a big fundraiser here uh, last night. So uh, he could have been anyone. So they're like, oh, interesting fundraiser. And so they try to figure out who the fundraiser was for. It's for a local councilman who is going to be running for Congress. And they, LVB is like, contact the New York Times. Maybe they sent a photographer there last night to cover the event. And we can show the photos to the valet and see if he recognizes anyone. So 
they do that, and the valet pours over the photos, and uh, f- suddenly he's like, that's him, that's the guy. And uh, the Times photos list who all of the people are, and so we learn his name is Todd Locke. So they bring him down to the station and ask him about, you know, was he driving this car, da-da-da-da-da. He is the chief aide to the councilman who is running for Congress, and he says, like, okay, yes, I was driving, I'm sorry, I, I know... I shouldn't have left the scene, but, you know, uh, this could have ruined the councilman's career. So I just moved her body from the passenger seat to the driver's seat, uh, you know, and ran because, you know, I panicked. By the way, considering that she has injuries that caused her death, he is just, like, clean as... What's that phrase? What's the phrase I'm looking for? Like, fresh fresh as a daisy. Fresh as a daisy. daisy. Uh, not not a scratch on this man, despite having been in a car accident that killed someone, killed mm-hmm. two people last night. Right. Uh, but uh, he's like, you know, uh, I was taking her home. She had too much to drink. And Logan's like, no, she didn't. Our, the Emmy says she had no alcohol in her system. And he's like, okay, she, I, she just seemed drunk. So I was taking her home. And Logan's like, did you? And Logan questions him if, about the sexual assault. And uh, he's like, you know, I never touched her, blah, 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 blah. And Logan mm. plays bad cop and starts to arrest him for rape. And he's like, okay, I'll, I'll tell you what happened. And he says that Lisa, the woman who died in the car accident, uh, told him that Councilman Talbert had raped her and he was driving her home. Mm. So Logan goes and talks to Kincaid, the assistant district attorney. And Kincaid says... Basically, like, we're going to need a really strong case uh, if we're going to charge a local councilman with rape. Uh, And LVB doesn't really like this because apparently the councilman has given a lot of funding to the police department and he's tough on crime, Mm -hmm. da-da-da-da-da. So Kincaid goes and talks to the aide, the guy who was driving the car and fled the scene of the accident, and she offers him a deal uh you know she won't prosecute him for uh tampering with evidence and leaving the scene of an accident if uh he testifies against the councilman uh which ultimately he agrees to Mm -hmm. so he tells uh kincaid that talbert had spotted lisa at the fundraiser and uh you know told him to bring lisa to his hotel room at the hotel and Uh, He told Lisa that Talbert wanted to talk with her and brought her up there, and he waited in the hotel bar, and, you know, a while later, Lisa came down, and she was crying, and she looked upset, and Talbert had left in a limo, and he drove Lisa home, and on the drive home before the accident, Lisa told him that Councilman Talbert had raped her, And, uh, you know, she was asking him to take her to a hospital, and that's when they were hit by the drunk driver. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Logan and Briscoe go to the councilman's office and tell him that that he's likely going to be facing rape charges. And he says, uh, you know, I was with Lisa, but, you know, we just had sex. It was not rape. Uh, And even just an accusation of this could ruin my political career, that scene was weird, but whatever. Uh, they go and talk to, they go back to Kincaid, Logan and Briscoe, and 
she's basically saying that uh, the aide who had been driving during the accident, uh, his testimony could be considered hearsay because Lisa, who's deceased, told him that this had happened, but, you know, she's now deceased, so she can't testify, so his testimony would be hearsay. Um, And the Emmy's report is inconclusive, so she doesn't think they have enough to formally charge the councilman with rape. Right. Uh, But Kincaid thinks if we can establish that uh, maybe he's done this before, that there's a pattern of behavior, then maybe we can establish Lisa's lack of consent without her testimony. So they go talk to a woman at the uh, campaign headquarters for Councilman Talbert, and she says, like, you know, nobody's ever complained to her, but people practically worship the councilman. Uh, Maybe go and talk to his wife, because his wife was here this morning and she didn't look very happy. (laughs) So they go talk to the wife, who looks like she's dressed like she's late to her 2.30 appointment on the Mayflower. And uh, she's like, we've been together 13 years. Our marriage is very strong. This is a false accusation. Mm -hmm. Uh, My husband told me about the indiscretion that he and Lisa had sex. And it hasn't been easy, but we're working through it. And I I like how she's like, it hasn't been easy. We're working through it. This literally happened last night. (laughs) Okay. Right. She she and by the way, your description of her, I die because she literally looked like she stepped out of a like painting yes. on the wall, like a mid century painting. Yes. <laughs> Just she, for the scene. She Step saw right back in. she saw Goody Proctor dancing with the devil by the moonlight. She is wearing uh, like high neck uh, black dress with more lace coming out of the neck, and the, she could play Dracula's girlfriend. Like there's there's many ways she this is costume could go. Tales. <laughs> Realness, yes. Uh, anyway, she says there have been no others. He hasn't ever cheated on me. He hasn't ever sexually assaulted anyone. Goodbye. Good. <laughs> so back at the station, LVB says, "Well, we don't really have much of a pattern here." So we can't really establish, you know, that he assaulted Lisa. Uh, but she's like, dig further into his past before he was a politician. So they go talk to a woman named Sarah Maslin, who is partner at a law firm where the councilman had worked before he left the law firm to go into politics. And she says that about a year before he left the law firm, mm-hmm. uh, Councilman Talbert had uh, assaulted the office manager of the law firm, and it had all been, like, dealt with, and, you know, she had gotten a settlement, and NDAs were signed, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. So she, they, they get her story, the, the former office assistant, and she basically says that he, like, you know, tried to assault her in a hallway, and he would have raped her if people hadn't, like— come into the hall and, like, uh, you know, interrupted him. Intervened. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but she says nobody really, like, saw anything. So they go back to his former uh, law partner, Sarah Maslin, um, and she says that, you know, she had talked the office assi- or office manager into seeing an attorney and all of that. And they're like, wait, this was your law firm. Like, why? Blah, blah, blah. Basically, uh, we learned that uh, she says, Sarah Moslin, the uh, partner, mm-hmm. says that Councilman Talbert also raped her. So uh, in the next scene, she talks to Kincaid um, and basically tells her about the night of the assault and that it happened at the office. And she says she didn't go to the police because Talbert was this hotshot lawyer. 
it would come down to he said, she said, and she knew that he was, you know, way more powerful than her and respected. And obviously he's a white man, she's a black woman. Uh, and so she just kind of thought it would end her career, basically, if she came forward with this. So they go talk to Sarah Maslin's doctor and uh, ask her about, you know, the day of the, the, and this had happened like three years ago, um, and ask her doctor about Sarah the day of the, uh, you know, a- alleged attack. And the doctor says that she believes Sarah. Sarah was very agitated when she came in for an exam. She had wanted to know about pregnancy and sexual, um, uh, sexually transmitted diseases, but she didn't necessarily see signs of sexual assault. Mm-hmm. So McCoy at this point is kind of wondering, like, maybe we can, you know, maybe we're making things too complicated. Let's, instead of trying to prove a pattern of behavior, let's just try the case of him having assaulted Sarah Maslin, his former uh, legal partner. So they go and charge him with the rape of Sarah Maslin. They arrest him for that. He's arraigned. So uh, his lawyer meets with McCoy and Kincaid, and he admits that, you know, he had sex with Sarah Maslin, but it was, his words are exactly are, not only was it consensual, it wasn't very good. And his lawyer says that Talbert's secretary was right outside his office where supposedly this rape had taken place. And she's like, if it was rape, don't you think his secretary would have heard something? So they talk to the secretary, and she basically says, like, I heard him yell through his door more times than I could count. I would have known if something had happened. Sarah Maslin definitely was not assaulted by Councilman Talbert. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, Sarah Maslin shows up at Kincaid's office and is, like, pissed because, like, word of this has gotten out. It's, like, impacting her career. The uh, press is, like, at her office, at her house. And she says she never agreed to publicly testify, and so she's mad that McCoy and Kincaid have been pursuing this. Uh, And so meanwhile, we learn that Sarah has scheduled a press conference for the next morning, and Kincaid thinks that she's going to deny any of it ever happened so that she can make it all go away. And McCoy, at this point, decides to, like, get upset with Kincaid and tells her, like, your personal feelings have gotten in the way of this. You know, you're basically, Mm -hmm. like, shaking his finger at her because she's a woman, even though it was him who said that they should try her case. So, okay. Revisionist history. Yeah. Uh, We get a plot twist where Sarah Maslin is involved in an organization that is trying to stop Councilman Talbert's uh, congressional run because of his history of voting against women's rights. Um, They go and talk to her and basically tell her that they're dropping her case. They're not going to try Councilman Talbert for uh, sexually assaulting her, but we might be charging you with conspiracy because you uh, made up this story and are trying to, you know, ruin his political career. She basically says that, okay, so he may not have raped me, but he was going to ruin my life. Like, he wanted sex from me and told me that if he didn't get it, that uh, he would ruin my career and that I would never make partner and he would make sure I I was blackballed from every other job that I would ever try to get. So now uh, McCoy has decided that uh, they're still going to try Councilman Talbert, but instead of sexual assault, they're going to charge him with larceny by extortion. Uh, And 
essentially we get like a bunch of scenes where they have to prove that she had material she was at risk of material damage if she didn't consent to what he wanted and basically the episode kind of like wraps up with the jury uh finding him guilty of larceny for extorting her for sex in exchange for not ruining her her uh legal career and it was just kind of a it, I didn't like this episode plot twist shocker uh, because yeah. it, it it was one of those episodes where we spent half of an episode researching one case and then they decided mm, let's switch what this whole episode is about about halfway through the episode and it was just like weirdly convoluted and uh, stupid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I I like I didn't mind the initial plot twist. Although it, we spent a lot of time. I mean, the whole reason we got into the whole episode was a red herring. Yes. The whole car accident in the first place that they spent such a great time working on. Right. Ends up being meaningless. Totally. Uh, so, but I, I didn't mind the plot twist at first, but then the way they handled it with the later plot twist, where yeah. she was like, okay, I lot, you know. Yeah. doesn't do anything to help. It looked like they were going down a, a positive road for a while. Though. It did, and then they ruined it all. Yeah. Kincaid was a lot very likable in this episode. She though. was, she yeah. Was, she's usually a little flip-floppy. Yeah. Well, do you have any guesses? Are you ready for this? Is Monica Lewinsky? No, okay. but you're, you're not totally off. You're okay. not totally off base. So this episode was inspired by the sexual harassment allegations. Anita Hill. Clarence Thomas by Anita Hill. Yeah, okay, wow. Yep, so this one is intimidating AF. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> I am not a political mind. I, I don't have that sort of, jar- the jargon that you need to have to speak confidently about politics Yeah, does not fit in my mouth. Yeah. I just don't have it. And so I'm always very insecure when I talk about these types of cases. <laughs> so I make sure that I research enough to understand it myself, and I hope that I'm able to convey everything as well as I can. And if you, this type of, um, <laughs> this section of <laughs> American lexicon, I think, is much more your forte. So if I, you hear something sort of weird, if I say someone is the wrong title, please feel free to help me out. Okay, I will. All right. Well, I didn't know a ton about this case. I mean, I know the names. Yeah. Um, and I know Judge Clarence <laughs> as he is now. Yeah. Um, but I, I didn't really know. I actually didn't know it was the same person. Yeah. Um, until a few years ago. Yeah. You know, with everything that happens with Kavanaugh. So that's really the first time I even made the connection. So I'm wondering how many people out there know more than I do. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, and this all happened in like 93, right? Like right around. Yeah, right right between like 91, 93. Yeah. yeah. So we were like eight and 10 years old. Right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> True. Give myself a pass. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to just go over some early live stuff about the, the main people involved in this whole case um, up until they meet just kind of catch us up so in order of birth Clarence Thomas 
pardon me again for my voice. <laughs> Clarence Thomas was born on June 23rd, 1948 in Pinpoint, Georgia. Pinpoint? That's such a funny town name. It's Yeah, and it's tiny. It's really, really tiny. Too. I mean, I guess, you know, the name. But it's, yeah, it's one of those tiny little towns that you could probably drive through in, in no time at all. Huh. Um, his father left his family at two, so it was just him and his mom and his sister. Mm -hmm. And not long after that, a fire forced his mother out of the home, and she knew she couldn't care for them anymore. So she, I'm unclear of where she um, ended up leaving the care of her daughter to, but she left Clarence with his, with her father. Okay. And so he was raised by his grandfather. Okay. Um, As a young boy, and even all through, like, high school and all of that he wanted to be a priest and he ended up being the first black student admitted to saint john viani uh which is like a very you know elite school where i guess you you study to be clergy priesthood yeah as a young boy um and you know he felt at the he says he felt the pressure of being the sole representative of um, his entire race while he was there. Yeah. And that was something that, like, weighed heavily on him and, you know, affects how he... choices he made in the future. Um, he had really good grades, and he, you know, did really well. He still wanted to be a priest. But after the Dr. Martin Luther King assassination in 1968, he found that he couldn't ignore his disappointment with how the clergy addressed racism yeah. anymore. And so it forced him to leave. Hmm. Um, he didn't leave the, his, his faith behind, but he left the church, okay. you know, the, that path. Um, this is when he tr- transfers to the College of the Holy, the, the College of the Holy Cross. And then after he graduated there, he goes to Yale Law, graduates there. At first he works for a senator for about five years. And then in 1981, Ronald Reagan propelled his career. This part is a quote. Ronald Reagan propelled his career even <clears throat> even further by appointing him chairman of the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, mm. which for the rest of this will be the EEOC. Mm-hmm. See, I didn't even know what that was. So that's how much <laughs> I, like, I had to like really you know get myself together. So that's where we're leaving off on him for now. So in 1981, he is appointed as the chairman of the U.S. EEOC. Okay. Anita F. Hill was born, and a lot of this is from her own um, her own mouth, uh, from later testimony of hers. Mm-hmm. So she was born uh, on a farm in Lone Tree, Oklahoma. Uh, that was on July 30th, 1956. All of her grandparents, all of her great-grandparents were born into slavery. Uh, and in fact, her grandfather, Henry, was also born into slavery. Wow. Which, it's kind of mind-blowing to me every time you think of time passage yes. in this country to think that Anita Hill, who is alive today and is you know an active member of society and right. is spry, right. has a grandfather who was born into slavery. Yeah, yeah. People are, uh, yeah, whenever people are like, it's like long past history. And like, no, it's it was not long ago. Mind- <laughs> mind like blowing yeah every time i hear something like that um so anita hill was the youngest of 13 wow yeah 13 on a farm 
Uh, her father, Albert, was a farmer, as I said. Her mother, Irma, was a farmer as well, and they managed, you know, managed that way. She says, quote, my childhood, my childhood was one of a lot of hard work and not much money, but it was one of solid family affection as represented by my parents. Uh, she grew up Baptist, which was something that's very important to her. She was the valedictorian of her high school in 1973 when she graduated. She got her undergrad in the University of Oklahoma in 1977 in psychology, and she graduated with honors. Then she went to Yale, Yale Law School, where she earned her JD with honors in 1980. Uh, right afterwards, she graduated and practiced law in Washington, D.C., and while she was doing that, I think it was private practice she was doing, she was introduced to Thomas by a mutual friend of theirs at a, you know, social, political type of party mm -hmm. in 1981. She was the guest. And while she conversed with him, chatted with him, uh, she, you know, shared that she was feeling like she wanted something more out of her career. And she was thinking about working and, you know, pivoting into politics. And he, during their conversation, said, you know, I'm actually maybe getting some sort of position in the future and I'd love for you to work for me if you're interested. She's like, yeah, definitely. So they connected. And um, when he first was appointed the Assistant Secretary of Education for Civil Rights, he asked her to step on as a uh, advisor or as an assistant. Sorry, it was a advisory attorney. Mm -hmm. There we go. Advisory attorney. And she accepted the position. She was one of two people that really worked with him, so worked very closely with him. Uh, it was a, you know, seemed successful. The pair would work together closely until 1982. Um, and then Thomas was transferred to the EEOC, as we, as we said, where we left off with him. And she went with him as his assistant. So he got this new promotion and this new position. He took her on, you know, said... They had a great relationship. He was impressed with her work, and she was happy to go with him at that point. Mm -hmm. So um, at this point, though, because it was a larger position with more responsibilities and more staff, their daily interaction was much, much, much less. Mm -hmm. uh, they really only saw each other in meetings and in passing. And so the frequency and of which they would work together face-to-face -face was much, much less. Despite this, a year later in 1983, Anita Hill you know, resigned. She accepted instead an assistant professor position at Oral Roberts University. Uh, this was in Tulsa, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And this is when their working relationship ended. Hmm. The two of them may never have had to encounter each other again after this in 1983. And they wouldn't until many years later in 1991. Um, July 1st, George Bush nominates Clarence Thomas for the Supreme Court to replace Thur Thurgood Marshall upon mm. his retirement. And this is when the two have their paths cross again. Demic so, uh, I'm sorry, I, I'm, I'm assuming everybody sort of knows who Clarence Thomas is. He's Republican, he's quite conservative. Mm -hmm. And at the time of him, you know, this appointment coming, everyone knew he was announced as the person that was going to be appointed. It all happened pretty quickly after... It was announced mm -hmm. that he was supposed to be, you know, the decision was supposed to be made. And it was pretty hotly debated because of his strong viewpoints and all of this. Uh, so Democratic staffers reach out to Anita Hill in September of 1991 
and they're concerned they they want to kind of like oppose this nomination yeah and they know that she had it's not completely unknown in the world of you know where she worked that there were allegations she wasn't the only one but there was nothing ever officially on file yeah but through the grapevine she'd been reached out to multiple times she kept denying any sort of interview Uh, she didn't want to talk about it after multiple times being reached out to and declining the media twice for interview she started to consider it. She said she would consider speaking out because she felt she had a moral obligation and a duty um, as a lawyer, as someone who is, you know, fighting for civil rights and for people and for people like her. (laughs) You know, she's fighting for people like her and she felt very conflicted because she didn't want to be publicly identified. Right. So she finally decides to give an interview in September 23rd. The FBI conducted an interview with her. On September 25th, they go to Thomas's house and they interview him. And it's mostly private still. Mm-hmm. There's like murmurings about it, but nothing's hit the press. On October 6th, NPR releases an article busting the whole thing wide open. They had heard some sort of comments at some press conference and they started to get suspicious about it. And they dug in and they were able to, you know, get inside information Uh, naming Anita Hill, uh, some of her allegations. And so it hit the press and it was, you know, pretty explosive right away. Yeah. The final vote of whether he would be, you know, be joining the Supreme Court was supposed to be October 8th, Mm -hmm. but it was quickly postponed uh, and a hearing was scheduled for October 11th. So I don't really, I never really watch a lot of court things. Yeah. (laughs) They, both of their opening statements are available pretty easily online on YouTube or C-SPAN or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, a few of the clips from the, the case or the, I don't know, the hearing mm-hmm. could be found online. So I watched both of their opening statements and some and some key points. It's Have you have you seen it? I've seen some of Anita Hill's testimony, but I haven't ever seen the whole thing. Yeah, so I'm sure you've seen, and, and this isn't new information. It's been talked about a lot in the in the last few years. But Anita Hill is a black woman, mm-hmm. and she is sitting in front of a panel to discuss her sexual harassment claims in the workplace to a panel of all white men. Yeah, all of maybe an average age of like 48. Yeah, and it's 1991. Yeah. 1991, and this is who's deciding her fate and who's listening with an empathetic ear. Yeah. Some of these men are in their well into their 50s. Yeah. Oh, and leading it is Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Joe Biden, mm. which I did not realize at all. Yeah, either. I don't think I knew that. Yeah, and it's it's kind of it's hard to watch because they begin by he gives them like a long you know this is these are the rules this is how this is going to go yada 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 everyone respect each other and this is how seriously we are taking sexual harassment in the workplace and we are listening with a believing ear and all of that kind of stuff and yeah you know this is very serious there will be no preference given none of the questioning that will be asked to either the uh professor hill or or thomas will be inflammatory or or judgy or anything it's all this like speech like it's gonna be this really progressive here proceeding yeah fair all of this and by the way they always you hear a lot about the panel when you look around the room most of the people in the room are white yeah 
the whole room. <laughs> yeah. So, um, at the time, she was a professor of law in the at the University of Oklahoma. So, um, I'll I'll give some some quotes. She says that uh, she's discussing when the the harassment started. So she says that everything is correct. She she met him at this fundraiser sort of party. He offered her the job. Um, when he got he was in position, she accepted the job, and it was it was great at first. You know things were exactly how she expected it to be. Mm -hmm. She says, quote, During this period at the Department of Education, my working relationship with Judge Thomas was positive. I had a good deal of responsibility and independence. I thought he respected my work and that he trusted my judgment. After approximately three months of working there, he asked me to go out socially with him. What happened next and telling the world about it are the two most difficult things, experiences in my life. It is only after a great deal of agonizing consideration and a great number of sleepless nights that I'm able to talk to anyone but my close friends. So she lays it all out really clearly. Mm -hmm. There's no malice. There's no vindictiveness. She speaks of him quite clinically mm -hmm. um, and really just describes everything in detail. She says that when he first asked her out, she declined, and she told him it was because, you know, they didn't, she didn't want to jeopardize their great working relationship. She thought it would be inappropriate. Um, she says that she believed then, and she believed at that time uh, that she's given the statement, that having a social relationship with someone that was supervising her would be, in her words, ill-advised. And she says, quote, during the latter part of my time at the Department of Education, the social pressures and any conversation of his offensive behavior ended. I began to both believe and hope that our working relationship could be a proper, cordial, and professional one. When Judge Thomas was made chair of the EEOC, I needed to face the question of whether to go with him. I was asked to do so, and I did. The work itself was interesting, and at that time it appeared that the sexual overtures that had so troubled me had ended. I also faced the realistic fact that I had no alternative job. So the extent of what she said had happened with her at the Department of Education working with him before they moved to the EEOC mm -hmm. was that he first asked her to go out. She declined and explained very clearly why, and she thought he would understand. She didn't see this. This was the first any sign of evidence that he was going to be predatory towards her. Yeah. Uh, she assumed it would be passed upon, but basically every day it was more, why not? What's the problem? Why would you not want to see me? Uh, lots of pressure. Then she said that when he wasn't pressuring her to go out with her, asking her why she declined and challenging it, she was having inappropriate sexual conversation with her, describing the type of pornography he would watch. Mm -hmm. Uh, describing the pornography as things he would watch where women would be having sex with animals, Oof. where, um, you know, he had certain fetishes he liked, and he, she mentions this a lot, and I'll, you'll understand why I'm even bringing it up, is that, you know, he kept talking about watching porn with women with big breasts, mm -hmm. and that's the exact words that she uses. Um, and he would comment on her appearance and whether she was looking attractive or not and what he she could do to look more attractive in the workplace. And so all of this was obviously very challenging for her. She said she constantly just tried to change the subject. She said it was usually unsuccessful. And, you know, it was a very challenging, toxic, 
demeaning work environment for her. Mm-hmm. And she felt very challenged as she just explained why. And so a lot of the criticism was if it was so bad then, then why did you agree to go with him when he went out of the office to the EEOC? And so she is clearly explaining why she went with him. It died down for quite a while before that. And she saw it as a good opportunity and hoped that everything was kind of done with. Yeah. She takes the job initially. It's going well at the very beginning. Uh, Then probably a couple months pass. She says fall and winter of 1982. Everything began again. The questioning of why he had been rebuffed by her in the past and why not now and things have changed and all of this stuff. Um, He started to compare himself to the porn stars and the porns he would watch and the size of his penis and his prowess in the bedroom. This is all things that um, she says in her testimony. Mm -hmm. And it's embarrassing, the things that she has to say. And it's terrifying to think that this is what she's experiencing at work for so long. Um, all the while he's saying what a great job she's doing and, and, you know, very proud of her work. So it's a, it's a really strict dichotomous relationship. Yeah. She says that in late 1982, she had such severe stress on the job, um, and she was fearing retaliation and threats. She was hospitalized with a stomach problem that she attributed, that they told her was from stress, which she attributed to work. Yeah. January of 1983, she started seeking out new employment. She realized she couldn't really work in this environment, regardless of how much she enjoyed the work and the cause. She realized that if he found out she was interviewing around, uh, she could probably be dismissed from her position and blackballed from getting any job in politics. Mm -hmm. And he was very well connected at this point. So she knew that if she was interviewing, he would instantly know. And so she was sort of in a strange position of what she was going to do with her career. Yeah. There was also a hiring freeze in the government at this point. And so she didn't know what she was going to do. There was a change in staff in the office while she was looking for a new job. And a woman named Allison Duncan was appointed the office director. And so now with her in position, everything was funneled through her. And the pressure was sort of relieved at work a little bit more. She rarely saw Thomas at all. Uh, Still, she needed to get out of there. And by spring of 1983... She accepted a university job. She says that she, um, when she told him he w- she was leaving, he asked her at, again to go out and said, well, now that you're leaving, there should be no problem. And now we should be able to work. We should, there's no problem with us working together anymore. She said again, she's not interested. And, you know, time passed after she gave her notice. And he said, okay, I want to take you out to dinner one time before you leave. And she says, no. And he says, I promise it's a professional courtesy only. And she says that she reluctantly agreed. She felt pressured into it, but she was like, I'll go if it's at the end of a work day. So she says they went directly from work to the restaurant. They had dinner. They talked about work. She said he was, you know, went over her uh, body of work while she was there and was pleased with it. Mm-hmm. And said nothing until the end. He said to her, Quote, if you tell anyone of my behavior, it will ruin my career. And there was no other conversation about it. And that's when she, uh, right after she had fulfilled the rest of her duties there, she left. She took the job in in Tulsa, I believe it was. And she left Washington, D.C. She denied any press questions for a long time. And it was only until she was reached out to multiple times that she agreed to give 
the interview. She says she has no vendetta. She felt it was her duty to report and that a lot has been made of her phone records with him because this is his his defense is, of course, that this is all false. Nothing's ever happened. He feels betrayed by this woman who he's helped so much and we had such a great relationship. And here, look, here are all these phone records from the time period after which she, you know, quit and who would be reaching out to each other. And so she says very clearly, like, exactly what all the calls were for. She says that in the period between leaving the office and now, she has seen him two times ever between 1983 and 1991. Uh, Once was to obtain a reference and another was at a public appearance of his. Uh, She said that of the call logs... He called her one time, and it was inconsequential conversation. Another phone call was when he called her, and she missed it. She called him back, and he missed it. And that all of the other calls were because she was working as a conduit, because she was still working, and people knew she had had worked with him and had a good relationship on the outside, and they asked her for things from him as he rose in power. And so she was asked to, like, make him... Ask him to be a speaker at an event for mm-hmm. a university. Um, she was asked to be to obtain materials for that event. She was asked to obtain materials for him to support causes. Uh, she was constantly in contact with his secretary, and so yes, of course she had contact with him. Right, but it was literally just normal work contact. Right. So when he gives his statement, he basically says that um, he had no idea any of this was ever being, quote-unquote, like, fictionalized, you know, uh, until September 25th, 1991, when the FBI arrived at his house. Uh, Clarence Thomas says that he was shocked, surprised, hurt, and enormously saddened. He says, quote, I have not been the same since that day. Uh, he says the same thing that they met, just like they said, by his friend Gil Harding, who he's still friends with, and the job was great, no problems, no idea what happened, um, and he's just deeply betrayed, and it's a lot of, like, my life has been turned upside down by these allegations, and I can't believe this and all the good work I do, and no one else has said anything, and this is ridiculous. Yeah. And then when they cross-examine or for lack of a better term, cross-examine Anita. The questions they ask her are so inappropriate. Mm -hmm. They're, like, laughing. They're demeaning her. One of them says, oh, come on, large breasts. It's not so bad. We all say breasts, and they all, like, laugh. They ask her if she misinterpreted things. And one of them is like, all I'm hearing is, like, what a great guy this guy is. (laughs) And that everyone else in this life thinks he's great except for you. Mm. And, uh, you know... Someone asks her, do you have sour... Are you a scorned woman? (laughs) That was the question asked to her. Are you a scorned woman? Wow. It's really rough. And, you know, Biden is leading it. Mm. There were two other women who had allegations against him. Neither could be considered during this. And the first was, I think, her... I don't think she wanted to go public with her name. She eventually did. But her allegations were very tertiary, like, hearsay, I think. Yeah. So they were, like, supporting the other women. Mm -hmm. So they couldn't really use her to much effect. Um, They didn't feel like it would strengthen much. And then the other woman, she was more willing to come forward. But her, like, they, the, both sides agreed she shouldn't 
testify because at the very best she would be good evidence for the for Anita's side, but if she did testify and it went the way that the um, Anita side was worried it would go, they thought they would like destroy her credibility for various reasons. Yeah, and it would kind of worsen it. So on October fourteenth, the hearing ends, and October fifteenth, he is confirmed uh, and you know appointed <laughs> Supreme Court judge with a vote. Of 52 to 48, hmm. which was the narrowest margin in over 100 years. Wow. Yeah. Uh, this event sparked national conversation over gender and race, <laughs> sexual harassment, uh, specifically in the workplace. It's credited by most historians as the catalyst for what was called the Year of the Woman, mm-hmm. when four female Democrats were elected to the Senate the next year. And about that is... I think that's great, and I think there's a lot of progress in that, especially for 1992. But I remember Paula Poundstone had a bit in her comedy act at that point, and she was like, everyone's running around the year of the woman. And she's like, do we know how much of the population we may make up on this planet? And we got four women into the Senate, and we're walking around screaming the year of the woman. Right. And she goes, what What white guy came up with that phrase? Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, but I mean, obviously... It's it's progress, and we've seen a lot since then. As far as updates of where things stand now after this historic decision, since then we all know the individual that Clarence Thomas has become. We all know how he fights against rights of women and the queer community, mm-hmm. to name a few. Mm-hmm. So I'll just leave it at that. You can look him up if you'd like. Um, as for Anita Hill... When she's asked about the case 30 years later, uh, she has a lot to say. She's very much in the public eye. She's done so much good um, since all of this. And all of the disrespect that was basically put upon her at the time, I feel like it's a 180. So um, she says about the trial and about how she had to prepare for it at the time. She says, quote, I had legal counsel that had limited experience with sexual harassment claims. They had some experience, but the setting was different. This wasn't a civil rights case being brought in federal court. It was entirely different. None of those rules apply. I approached it by just trying to be as clear as I could possibly be about what had happened to me. I didn't approach it trying to prove that I was sexually harassed. My goal was to prove that Thomas could behave to me in a way that put into question his ability or his authority to be on the Supreme Court. That he behaved in a way that could easily have been interpreted as a violation of the of the law that he was sworn to protect. If I could just clearly say what it was that had happened, I assumed that would be enough. I mean, they had to interpret it. That was their job. My job was to tell it, and I did my job. I don't think they did theirs. Um, I would have to agree. Yeah. She continued to work as a professor for years after this, trying to stay out of the public eye. When she started to feel more on fire for the causes and when she started to feel more safe to start being public again, she began accepting jobs as a, vis- as a visiting scholar. She worked with foundations and women's studies programs. And in 2011, quote, she took a counsel position with the Civil Rights and Employment Practice Group of the plaintiff's law firm Cohen Milstein. Uh, she has contributed, edited, and written tons of published works uh, all of them are very highly revered. Mm-hmm. She led the charge against sexual harassment in the workplace for the Commission on Sex- Sexual Harassment and Advancing Equality in the Workplace. 
in September 2018, uh, she wrote an op-ed for the New York Times, and it was about the sexual assault allegations against Brett Kavanaugh. Mm-hmm. And... Of course, when this trial was going on, Anita's story was brought back into the forefront, especially with how it was handled and how the questions of what's changed, what will be different, are obviously under a microscope. And I think we can look at the results of that and see not a lot. Yeah. Uh, Well, you know, she would would disagree. You know, she would disagree. I, I mean, it's from an outsider's perspective, it's... You know, not a lot, um, but the climate has changed, mm-hmm. and people have changed out here, and uh, there is hope. You know, yeah, it's one of those things that where there's like been a lot of good, and there is a lot more to be done. Right, right. It's it's at least a conversation at the very least. Right. Where back then it, it was largely, you know, who is this Anita Hill, and and what is she trying to do to this poor guy right. and his family? Yeah. She was interviewed during this time. She was, you know, at the proceedings. She was a big, big voice and advocate for survivors and victims' rights. She said, quote, The court really is only as strong as all of the people who are sitting on it. So having two sitting justices who whose integrity has been called into question is a blow to the court and the entire judicial system in this country. Amen. Yep. She later wrote a book called Believing about her life, her experiences, her visions for the future, And, you know, a lot of other survivors' accounts are in there as well. And she says, quote, I really moved into more a world of problem solving, not just announcing what a problem is or what has happened to me. What I've moved to in believing is what is happening in our society, what's happening to individuals in elementary schools who are bullied and harassed and sexually harassed in numbers that we don't even have a full accounting of, Mm -hmm. what's happening in colleges and universities, We're beginning to understand that very recently with students protesting sexual assault in fraternities and asking for the closing of fraternities. And what's happening in our workplaces? There are examples over and over again. In 2019, President, uh, at that time, you know, not President yet, uh, he was faced with this question of what had happened back then and what does he think about it today and his part in it. And in 2019, uh, Joe Biden apologized publicly. He said, quote, she faced a committee that didn't fully understand what the hell this was all about. To this day, I regret I couldn't give her the kind of hearing she deserved. I wish I could have done something. Uh, she says... You she could have done something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, an apology is all well and nice. Um, she says she did, she did not need an apology. And here's I'll end on what she says about this in her book. Or in an interview about her book and, um, you know, this apology. Someone asked her, like, what do you think about this long overdue, barely non-apology? <laughs> yeah. And she says, quote, first of all, as I talk about in the book, my conclusion is that Joe Biden's apology to me was an apology on this personal level. Okay, I apologize to you. Without acknowledging the real harm that was done, not only to all of the people who had complaints who might have come forward, to the people who were just disappointed that our system failed so spectacularly, but also the ongoing harm that was being done because this became a model, an example of how our government reacts. Yep. That the personal apology is not enough when you're the president of the United States. Yeah. And I reserve the right to be able to say that. I didn't really have to have an apology, but what I really need, what we all need, 
if you want this country to have confidence in its government, is a commitment that you're going to fix this problem. Yep. And that is the story of Anita Hill and the sexual assault allegations against now Judge Clarence Thomas. Uh, yeah. Wow. There's yikes. <laughs> yeah. Big yikes. Big I... yikes. But, you know, I mean, she's done incredible work. Yeah. And it's it makes me feel positive to see people who are doing the work say positive things about it. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I mean, she has inspired so many, many people and so many um, scholars because, like, her case is the inspiration for Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw's concept of intersectionality, which talks about mm. the like I- intersecting multiple marginalizations that women of color experience, and that she, you know, had to go through this process and experience oppression not just as a woman, not just as a black person but as a black woman and how that showed up really uniquely for the way that her credibility was called into question and the seriousness of the allegations and all of that kind of stuff so she she has had a huge 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 impact on the world just in in sharing her story so um oh totally i i I found there's this website i found and it was like why her testimony was never believable (laughs) And it's just like official website, and you go to it, and it like literally looks like the cover of a tabloid. I was uh, yeah. Like, goodbye. Yeah. Clicked goodbye. Right off of it. Oh, and this is disgusting. This is just a detail I wanted to share. Um, Ginny Thomas, Judge Thomas's wife. Oh, I was going to say, stood gosh, by him. What does that name sound so familiar? Right. Yeah. Okay. Virginia. Um, she left a uh, message to Anita Hill, in I think 2018, mm-hmm. asking her to. I'll just I'll just tell you the quote from the voicemail she left her. I would love you to consider an apology sometime and some full explanation of why you did what you did with my husband. So give us some thought and certainly pray about this and come to understand why you did what you did. Okay, have a good day. The unmitigated audacity to send that voicemail is just bonkers to me. Yeah, Anita Hill was like, yeah, I did not respond. It was like you know wildly inappropriate yeah and when uh when she was questioned on it later jenny was like i was just trying to broker peace no you weren't <laughs> fuck off oh god <laughs> oh my god bake that in a pie you need it yeah wow well how would you rate the episode it was like fine the acting was was quite good i'll say that yes the actress um, who played sarah maslin in the episode was really good and yeah. i meant to look her up i'll look her up really quickly while you're she did look familiar, didn't she? A little bit, yeah. Yeah. But she was great. And, um, you know, the storyline until the, the ending was, like, gripping to me. Even though it was, like, very convoluted and it took a real sharp left turn. Yeah. Since I knew the case already, I kind of was, like, expecting something different. <laughs> so I give it a... Oh, I'll give it a C plus for watchability. What about you? Yeah, I'd say C, C, C plus. It wasn't terrible, but it wasn't great. Um, it, I, I was at the end was kind of like, why? Like it became a completely different story than it started out as, um, which was, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, this actress who played Sarah Maslin, her name is Regina Taylor, and she has been in a lot of things, including like series regular in a bunch of stuff. Like she was in a show called The Unit, which I've never seen. Uh, but she was in 70 episodes of that for a three-year span. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. She was in Lovecraft Country. 
Um, oh, I heard that was great. Yeah, and another series called All Fly Away that I also have not seen, but uh, seems like she's had a pretty successful career after this Law & Order episode. Good for her. Yeah, she was great. Yeah. Um, and as far as how it dealt with the crime, I am, like, very disappointed. Yes. <laughs> um, I think it, like, undoes the the work that is trying to be done. Yeah, I agree. About what happened with the actual case. So I think it's, like, honestly, if they had left out that stupid twist with her, like, oh, okay, fine. I was, you know, they made her look at, look like a, um... Like a vixen trying right. to get ahead. Right, yes. You know what I mean? Yes. If they deleted that and just let her be a powerful character coming forth after all this time, that could have changed everything. But otherwise totally. than that, F. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Yeesh. Well, Ripped from the Headlines is an indie podcast. And if you enjoy listening to us and think that other folks might too, the best thing that you could do is to rate and review our podcast on the platform that you're currently using to listen to this episode. Yes. And the second best thing you could do is recommend our podcast to a friend because you have good taste. Because you have good taste and people respect your opinion. Yes. And our social media is Ripped Headlines on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Our email is rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com. And we love, love, love getting email from you. So feel free to just send us a note to say hi. Yes, and don't forget to check out our website uh, where you'll find the link to our Patreon, which has some great perks, and you get the joy of supporting one of your favorite podcasts. Yes. And a percentage of our Patreon proceeds gets donated to the Equal Justice Initiative. Oh, wait. I skipped something, didn't I? No. No. Also, a percentage of our Patreon proceeds gets donated to the Equal Justice Initiative. <laughs> so by supporting us, you're also supporting positive change in the world. Yes. And if you want, you can also buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash nandmat. Thank you so much for listening to Rip from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We'll see you next week. And until then, stay out of the headlines. Bye. Bye.